Today's reading from the Word of God comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here at Anchor Bay Church. Uh, and uh, it's been a while since I've been up here, so much so that I almost forgot to put on my preaching slippers, uh, but thankfully, Kellyanne reminded me. Oh, could you have imagined? Uh, so, uh, as is our custom, before we get started, we're going to take uh, a moment of silence to give ourselves permission to be quiet and set down anything that we might have brought in with us this morning. So, let's take a few moments of silence, and then I'll open us in prayer. Father, you are good. We thank you uh, for the ways that you bless us, the ways that you let us know that you're with us. Lord, we ask this morning that uh, you would be with us uh, and that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds. We ask all these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen. So how many of you have ever found yourself uh, in the following situation? You're sitting up late at night, sleep is escaping you, and your brain chooses that moment to ask you the following question. Hey, remember that really embarrassing thing you did almost 20 some odd years ago? Has anyone, has that ever happened to anyone? Yeah, I think it's a pretty common human experience. Uh, and uh, these stories we recall can take on all different forms of embarrassment. For example, you might recall a story of when you embarrassed yourself. Like when you were a high schooler announcing a state of when you embarrassed yourself. Like when you were a high schooler announcing a state Winter Guard competition. Winter Guard is that thing where they dance and throw the flags. Uh, you're announcing this competition and you turn off the music in the middle of one of the group's routines. And the group's director then begins to clap and count so that the performers could finish the routine. And then you proceed to apologize over the mic uh, before the routine was over, interrupting the performance not once, but twice in front of several hundred thousand high schoolers. 
just a hypothetical example, but on a side note, despite that colossal mess up, I was invited back the next year. Or you might recall a story of when you embarrassed someone else, like when you were at half-day kindergarten and you brought one of your box turtles to school for show and tell and you lost it. Then once they found it, after you had left for the day, they paged your middle school sister over the intercom and told her in front of her entire class that she could pick up her brother's turtle after school. Again, just a hypothetical example, but my sister loves to tell that story. Uh, or you might recall a story of when someone else embarrassed you. Like when you were at an extremely nice restaurant uh, for Valentine's Day with your then-girlfriend, now-wife, and the waiter comes over with a pepper grinder to put pepper on her salad. And since this was the first really fancy restaurant she had been to, she did not know she was supposed to say, when. So after the pepper started to form a small mountain and the pepper was rolling down the side of Pepper Mountain, the waiter stopped and asked, ma'am, is, is that enough? Uh, again, just a hypothetical example, but I did ask permission to share that story, and she did, in fact, eat the entire salad. Um, these are all very light-hearted examples of memories of embarrassment. Embarrassment is a feeling of discomfort at which you can easily laugh given enough time. Embarrassment is short-lived. Then there are those heavier memories, the ones that we can't quite laugh about no matter how much time passes. In the darker nights of the soul, a different visitor comes knocking at the door and reminds us all too well of the broken promise or confidence, the shared or buried secret, the failed business or test, the dropped course or program, the abandoned relationship, the unyielded desire, the unstopped violence. Whether it was done by us or done to us, it does not matter. We feel isolated and cut off. We feel shame. Shame is the feeling or experience of believing that we are, we are flawed and because of our flaws we are not worthy of love or belonging. We feel as though there is something wrong with us and are therefore unlovable. We feel like something we have experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. And this morning, as we are continuing our sermon series, The Gospel of John, Come and See, uh, in our text we are going to see what Jesus did when he encountered two teenagers who on the biggest day of their first century lives were in danger of slipping over the edge and having to live the rest of their lives with a feeling of shame hanging over them, their relationship, and their family. And before we get going, I want to pause and address two landmines that I just have to fully step on in order to unpack this text. So the first landmine is weddings and marriage. We're going to talk at length in an, and in an overtly positive way about weddings. Historically, despite Paul's wish for all Christians to remain single, the church universal has put this huge emphasis on marriage being the most important step someone can take in their life. And it has not done a great job of making space for people who are single. So if you are single and or divorced, I want you to know you are welcome here as you are. Please don't hear my praise of weddings as an indictment or commentary on that lifestyle. The second landmine is wine and the drinking thereof. We are going to talk at length and in an overtly positive way about wine. If you or someone you love struggles with a substance abuse issue, particularly alcoholism, please do not hear my praise of wine as an endorsement or permission slip for that lifestyle. Instead, here, please, please hear me say that you do not have to navigate alcoholism alone. We as a church and we as a pastoral staff want to come alongside you uh, and tread that road to recovery with you. 
If we as a church or I as an individual ever have to choose between having you present at an event or having alcohol present at an event, we will choose you every time. With these two disclaimers stated and in full sincerity, I'm going to now feel permission to lean heavily on those two aspects of the text. If you ever find yourself thinking while I'm preaching, hmm, it sure sounds like he's saying that if I'm single or that if I don't drink, I'm in some way deficient or missing out. Please refer back to this part of the sermon. Now, let's get to work. I actually want to start our walk through the text at the end. So let's look at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The gospel calls this story a sign. And in John chapter 4, we will again hear mention of a sign. And by the end of chapter 12, we'll have heard about seven signs. In fact, John 1 to 12 is often referred to as the book of signs, with the book of passion or the book of glory making up John 13 to 20. Last week, Pastor Ali talked about Jesus calling his first disciples. In that narrative, Jesus told Nathanael that he would see greater things than being told Jesus saw him under a fig tree. These signs are those greater things. Now, I don't think any of us in the room are sign scientists. However, I think we can all agree that the function of a sign is to point to something. These signs in the Gospel of John will not only demonstrate Jesus' power, but they will point to who Jesus is fundamentally, who Jesus is at his core. And John chose this story in particular to mark the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. This story is placed as the first sign for a reason. It bears some significant weight. Pastor Tim Keller likens it to a politician announcing their candidacy for office. At the first campaign stop, a good politician is going to tell you their slogan, what their platform is all about, who they are, and what their agenda is. So what is Jesus all about, and what is Jesus' agenda? Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter to get our setting and our problem. Verse 1 says, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So we find ourselves at a wedding where the guest list includes Mary, Jesus, and his disciples. And they're in Cana, which is uh, near Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, both of which are in the Galilee region. So a few things about first century marriages and weddings, especially marriages and weddings in a more remote area like Galilee. There's an almost 100% chance that the bride and groom were teenagers. That was the social norm of the first century. You didn't go off to college. Most didn't go off to school at all. Heck, you rarely even ever moved out. You were way more likely to have built onto your parents' house than to uh, have moved out. And if you did move out, you would almost never, ever move to another town. If you were born in Cana, you were likely to live your entire life in Cana, and you were likely to die in Cana. So we have two teenagers who have likely spent their entire lives in and around Cana. Next, weddings were week-long affairs, and your entire community was invited. You didn't send out like a select guest list. Your entire community was invited. Not just your friends and family, everyone. And after the ceremony, the reception would have been this huge party that lasted for days. Remember, travel in the first century was difficult, so people would come and then they would linger. Zipping up to Cana for an afternoon wedding and then ducking out of the reception early so you could be home for dinner in Nazareth uh, so you didn't sleep in your own bed was just not a thing. So, 
here we have two unnamed teenagers, and we're at some point in the week-long festivity. Now let's stop for a minute and notice something here. Recall Pastor Gene's sermon from a couple of weeks ago, right? John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And John 2 says, Jesus and His disciples were at a wedding. Hello? Do you see that juxtaposition? Does that not give you a little bit of whiplash? If it doesn't, I think our church experience has maybe desensitized us a little bit. In the beginning was the Word with God, uncreated creator, and now the Word is doing the cha-cha slide at a wedding. (laughs) Don't miss the deliberate juxtaposition there. Infinite divinity made flesh at a week-long party for two unnamed teenagers And he's there with his mother. No lie, this story is my favorite story in the New Testament. That's the reason I volunteered to preach it. If you were to ask me, Brent, where does theology begin for you? Upon what primary text do you shape your worldview and your understanding of God? I would respond by saying, great question, thanks for asking. And after listing a half dozen other passages, you would find John 2 on that list. Why? Why is this passage so important to me. Well, for many years, uh, for many of the reasons uh, that I'll continue to unpack, you'll see why, but if it was just for this reason alone, it'd be sufficient. You see, this passage cured me uh, of an ailment. Due to some combination of growing up in the buckle of the Bible belt and being born with a soul much older than my body, I had an acute case of what Dr. Uh, Reverend Sean McMillan calls Christian seriousness. Maybe you or a loved one also suffer from said disease. My symptoms included an inability to translate the promises of God into good news. An inability to communicate what Jesus has to offer as good news rather than a burden. I was an expert at the self-denial, sacrifice, and suffering parts of Christianity, which are indelibly part of, but certainly not the ends of Christianity. My life was not marked by joy Certainly not the joy of serving a God who, as the Word made flesh, was at a party where they were drinking wine. John 2 saved me from my life of Christian seriousness, so it has earned its place on my list. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. We have some context. A first century wedding party for a couple of teenagers, the infinite creator in a conga line. So if these signs, right, the signs in John, are meant to demonstrate Jesus' power and point to who Jesus is, to what issue is Jesus going to apply his phenomenal cosmic power? Surely someone at the wedding is going to have a heart attack or a physical ailment, and Jesus is going to heal them to demonstrate his power over sickness and the human body. Or there's going to be like a great typhoon, and that will endanger everyone's life at the wedding, and Jesus is going to calm the storm to demonstrate his power over nature. Surely Jesus' first sign is going to be dressing a major calamity or sickness, or a storm. Let's read what this major calamity is. Verse 3 says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Hello? The first time Jesus will display his power is to address the fact that a party has run out of wine? That can't be right. 
John, surely we skipped something here in, in the gospel. This is the first sign. Now, all joking aside, there are some first century cultural norms at work in the background here. Our culture here on the northeast coast of the United States, believe it or not, is very different from the culture of a first century Roman occupied area in Palestine. One of the most highly held values that we have here is individualism, a trait that basically the rest of the world for most of history is called selfishness, but we call it individualism. <laughs> One of the hardest concepts for us to grasp is this idea of an honor and shame culture, especially the family and communal dynamics that are mixed up in that culture of honor and shame. A party running out of wine today might just be viewed with an attitude that says, that happens, no big deal. And maybe it becomes this sort of cautionary tale that you'll recall with friends in the future as a parable when you're estimating the needs for a party. Remember that time Brent's party ran out of deviled eggs? That's a ludicrous example, I know. My party would never run out of deviled eggs, but let's go with it. Uh, it certainly would not be something... If that ever happened, it certainly would not be something that would besmirch, besmirch my parents' reputation, nor would it have any impact on my children's future. Running out of wine at a party in the first century is not like that, though. It was, in fact, a big deal. This party running out of wine would literally mark the rest of this couple's life together. And this event would be seen as something that brought shame to their family. For generations, this story would be told not as a cautionary, funny story, but as a failure that caused the family to fall in the social standings of the community, marking them as less than desirable members of the community. Even by the most dramatic understanding of honor and culture, though, this is not a life-or-death situation, nor is there some natural disaster looming on the horizon. Nevertheless, this was a very real danger, and it was looming over the party, but Jesus is there, and Jesus is going to apply his presence and his power. And thanks to Mary, this story has a different ending. Thanks to Mary, this story does not go down as a cautionary tale, but a tale of when Jesus displayed his glory and showed the world who he was by turning water into wine, thereby wiping the egg off the face of a couple of befuddled teenagers. As a pastor, I have this unique privilege of walking alongside people in the highs and lows of life. When people are at their best and when people are at their worst. And this can be felt most of all in two important ceremonies. The funerals and weddings. When, someone bege when something begins to go awry at a funeral or wedding, you can physically feel the stress start to radiate and seethe outward. And as the stress of running out of wine begins to rage at this party, Mary goes to Jesus and makes an observation. Not a request. Not a plea, not a command. Mary simply says, they have no more wine. Then what does Jesus say? Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, does that seem like a yes or a no to you? Because when I read that, that sure seems like a no, right? It doesn't take, you know, some genius biblical scholar to decipher this complicated text it seems like he's saying, this has nothing to do with me. Please leave me alone. But how does Mary respond? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Hello? Does that seem like the next logical follow-up to what Jesus just said? Again, it doesn't take a genius to decipher that Mary seems to be ignoring what Jesus just said to her. How can that be? How can Mary respond this way? 
How is she able to say what she says after the mild rebuke she just got from Jesus? Well, despite what that wretched Christmas song posits, Mary does know. (laughs) Mary knows who Jesus is. Mary knows that Jesus is the son of the God who does mighty deeds and lifts up the humble. Mary can go to Jesus like she does because she knows who Jesus is. Mary saw a problem. The wine was gone, but it was not time for the celebration to be over. And she knew how to and who could solve it. So she went to Jesus, the only person there who could and would solve it. Now, what I love about these two verses is how uncomfortable it makes commentators and preachers. I know it makes them uncomfortable because I just spent a week reading and listening to a bunch of people do these mental gymnastics to try and make a squabble between a mother and son not look like a squabble between mother and son. They struggle to let Jesus have an honest-to-God human moment with his mother. People jump through these incredible hoops to make woman mean something other than woman. They try to say it's some honorific title that Jesus is using as a sign of respect towards his mother. You know how much linguistic evidence there is for that claim? Zero. Now, the opposite is also true. This is not the same as saying woman to someone today. It's not a term of disrespect. Likely, the nuance of this word has something like this, mom or mother. Unfortunately, that's not very easy to translate into the written word. Um, but that's likely the nuance it carries. You know, the way that you've said the word mom when you're with your mom and you're having a little bit of a public squabble and you just want the conversation to end. It also makes commentators and preachers uncomfortable because it sure seems like Mary is flat out ignoring what Jesus just said to her and moving forward despite the conversation. In my preparation for this sermon, I did my normal routine where I read several commentaries, made a tentative outline and direction, and then I listened to a handful of sermons on the passage. And I was just getting so frustrated that everyone was bending over backwards to navigate these two verses. Then I listened to a sermon by Reverend Dr. Renita Weems. If you don't know who Dr. Weems is, she was the first African-American woman to earn a doctorate in Old Testament studies. Reverend Dr. Weems had zero issue with these, being, these verses being what they are. A real human moment where a son and a mother have a short, mild-mannered tiff And the mother ignores the son because she knows better, and she knows that he knows better. Then out of curiosity, I went and listened to a sermon by Reverend Dr. Sean McMillan, an African-American scholar and minister and thought leader. You know what he thought about these verses? That they contain a real human moment where a mother and a son have a short, even-headed disagreement, where afterwards the mother and son move forward together. All of us come to the Bible carrying this idea of what we think the Bible has to say. We come to this verse thinking, Jesus can't call his mom woman, and Mary certainly can't tell Jesus what to do, and she especially can't ignore him once he's said no, even though that seems to be exactly what the text is indicating. It was a good reminder that often the only way to break out of our mental rut is to seek wisdom from people with the courage and common sense to bring a lifetime of everyday human experience to the biblical text. Now back to the text. I want us to notice one more thing about these two verses. Why does Jesus say he doesn't want to get involved? His reasoning is, he says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus had a plan and he had a path he knew he must and would walk. And at the end of that path was Jerusalem and the cross. 
Jesus had a schedule. Jesus had a timetable. Now, with that in mind, think about the fact that Jesus disrupts his schedule. At the request of Mary, the word made flesh breaks the rules to help keep a party going by making more wine. Incredible. Jesus then told the servants to fill these large stone jars with water. They took these jars, which people would have been using to draw water from in order to clean themselves up after traveling and before eating, and they filled them to the brim. So quick maths, they had about 180 gallons of water on their hands. Then Jesus instructed them to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, which they did. Now the master of the banquet would have been similar to a master of ceremonies. His job would have been to make the party great and to keep the party going, almost like a DJ at a wedding reception. This guy was also in danger because his reputation would have also been ruined uh, after being the master of a banquet where the wine ran out. Not a good thing to have on your resume. This isn't just an oopsie-daisy moment for this individual. It would have wreaked havoc on his reputation. He would have to spend the rest of his life rebuilding his reputation in the community. At some point in the process between filling the jar and the master of the banquet tasting what was drawn from the jar, the water becomes wine. There's no trumpets or fanfare. Lightning doesn't strike the jars or anything. It just becomes. And after tasting the wine brought to him, the master of the banquet had to go find the bridegroom and pull him aside. I imagine the master of the banquet chastised the bridegroom for not telling him about this wine he just tasted. He would have never served the Boone's farm while people were still sober if he knew this was available. We aren't told the bridegroom's response. It doesn't sound like anyone but the servants, Mary, and Jesus know where this wine came from. So the bridegroom was probably just as dazed as confused as the master of the banquet about where this excellent wine came from. And notice what the master of the banquet said. The best has been saved until now. This is the final lesson of the story. The good wine is here now. Jesus has arrived. Just like the serving of cheap wine was replaced by the serving of choice wine, whatever cheap substitute we are spending our life in service of can be replaced by spending our life in service of Jesus. The good wine is here now. And unlike the other wine, this wine will never run out. The wedding was saved and the party can continue. Jesus disrupted his plans at the urging of Mary and intervened to save the reputation of two teenagers starting their lives together by making 180 gallons of jaw-dropping wine. This is how Jesus chose to show us the beginning. This is how John chose to show us the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. This is the first of seven signs, remember? And signs point to things. These seven signs in John point to who Jesus is. So to summarize, what exactly does this sign of turning water into wine point out about Jesus and his mission? In transforming water into wine at a wedding, Jesus transforms scarcity and shame into abundance and joy. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus will spend his life and ministry removing shame and replacing it with abundant joy. When it comes to uh, reading the stories found in the Gospels, one of the interpretive tactics I've learned in my journey is that each story has at the very least at least two basic lenses through which we can see and derive meaning. First, 
we see ourselves through the lens of the people in the story that Jesus is interacting with. We see ourselves as the disciples or as the Pharisees or two befuddled teenagers on their wedding day. And where do we desperately need Jesus to show up in our lives and transform something in and around us? Then I think there's another invitation in the Gospels, and that is the invitation to join Jesus on his uh, ongoing mission in the world so that we can see ourselves through the lens of Jesus. Where is Jesus calling us to join him in showing up in the lives of those around us? We can never fully be Jesus, and we are never expected to be, but we can absolutely join him on mission. So with those two things in mind, where do we need Jesus and where can we join Jesus, let's conclude by looking at these two aspects of Jesus that we just unpacked in the story. We have Jesus, the eater of shame, and Jesus, the abundantly joyful. First, Jesus, the eater of shame. Shame encircles this party and threatens the people entangled in its near social disaster. It looms on the edges, ready to devour. Instead of waiting for his time to come, Jesus acts to absorb the failure and shame of everyone involved. One of the things I love about this passage is that it never talks about whose fault it is that the wine was running out. Did more guests come than RSVP'd? Was the party lasting longer than originally planned? Did the bride and groom just fail to buy enough wine? Did the master of the banquet not tell the bride and groom the correct amount of wine to buy? The passage doesn't tell us, because it doesn't matter who. Earlier, we talked about the difference between our individualistic culture and their collectivist culture. One similarity that our cultures have is that they love the mentality of you get what you deserve. What's that? You messed up and you made a mistake? Let me rub your nose in it and remind you of the ways you screwed up. What's that? You made a decision when you were 18 and now the consequences of that choice are still following you around in your 30s? Too bad. Choices have consequences, and you have to sleep in the bed you made for yourself. And sorry, not sorry, folks, that is not what I see Jesus doing when I read the Gospels. He doesn't go to the bride and groom and tell them that if they had planned better, they wouldn't be in this situation. Jesus absorbs the failure. He eats the shame. If that isn't good news for you this morning, I don't know what is. No matter the failures, no matter the choices, no matter what, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of mercy, love and power. That's something we all need. We all need a Jesus full of mercy, love and power, who stands ready to save us. So that's the first lens. What is Jesus offering us in this story? Jesus is demonstrating that Jesus is someone who can absorb shame, no matter the fault, no matter the magnitude. So that's one lens. Now let's look through the other. Where can we join Jesus in eating the shame so prevalent in the world? Let me tell you a story of how I have seen this played out in my life. I recently wrote an email to a group of people, and I unfortunately wrote it in haste. And I erred on the side of truth without giving enough thought to the amount of grace the email required. Side note, always, always, always have someone you love and trust read your work when sending an important email or letter. It will save a ton of time and a ton of hurt down the road. When this group of people read my email, it caused a major, major shame reaction, which was never my goal. My intended message was completely and utterly lost because I chose to use callous and shame-inducing language instead of tempering and strengthening my words with grace. My words were true, I have no doubt of that, but they were not able to fall on my reader's ears as intended. 
You see, instead of decreasing the amount of shame in the world, I increased the amount of shame in the world. When it was brought to my attention that I had created shame, guess what? It created shame in me. Because shame is very good at creating more shame. When shame is our first, and, uh, when shame is our first reaction, uh, usually to create more shame, and humanity has been doing this ever since Adam and Eve. Thankfully, my readers were people willing to absorb shame rather than nurture it. I'm still navigating the fallout of this email, but my readers have made it clear that they will not perpetuate the cycle of shame we could have found ourselves endlessly trapped in. Where can you be someone who absorbs shame? In the workplace, one of the quickest ways to get ahead is to subtly cut the heels of the people we work alongside. And one of the most effective ways of doing this is to point out and exaggerate every uncharacteristic failure and minor shortcoming our coworkers have, thereby increasing the shame of another. In school, and also in the workplace, one of the quickest ways to get in with a group of people is to mock or make fun of the accidental failures and extraneous shortcomings of someone that group dislikes, thereby increasing the shame of another. In our home, one of the quickest ways to feel superior to our spouse, children, guardian, or roommate is to point out their every atypical failure and unexpected shortcoming, and thereby increase the shame of another. If you want to see your workplace, your school, and your home transformed by Jesus, if you want to see your coworkers, classmates, and community inspired to seriously consider the claims of Christ, be someone that decreases the amount of shame in the world instead of increasing it. The only way we are able to absorb the shame of others is because we are confident and secure in the fact that Jesus has eaten our shame. And that leads me to a crucial reminder we have to keep in mind uh, when applying this lens. We are, in fact, not Jesus. It's hard to believe, I know, but we are simply not Jesus. We are invited to join Jesus on mission. We are, invited, we are not invited to supplant Jesus. We, don't ha- we do not have the ability to absorb shame no matter the fault, no matter the magnitude. That's his job. If someone is hurting you physically or emotionally day in and day out, your job is to not keep absorbing uh, that shame. Your job is to get out. If that is happening to you, you can discreetly come to me or any one of the pastoral staff, and we will get the right people involved to help get that situation sorted. Sometimes for there to be more net good and more healing in the world, the consequences of people's actions do need to hit them square in the jaw. Everybody hear me on that? Good. First, Jesus the shame eater. Second, Jesus the abundantly joyful. When you picture Jesus in your head, what do you see? For centuries... Jesus has been painted as this long-haired Adonis whose skin tone is a little too pale. Uh, He was a Middle Eastern man uh, who spent his early years likely working as a carpenter, meaning he would have had dark hair and dark skin with cuts and calluses on his hands. But beyond this physical appearance, when you picture Jesus, what expression does he have on his face? Is he smiling? I think because so many of us in the church grew up in a context where Christian seriousness was seen as a virtue rather than a vice, we struggled to picture a Jesus who smiles or a Jesus who dances at a wedding and drinks wine with his mom and friends. John 2 shows us a joyful Jesus whose first sign, the first act that marked his public ministry was making an abundance of great wine so a party could keep going. I think we often find ourselves in situations like this young bride and groom. Despite our best efforts and our best plans, the wine has run out. 
and we find ourselves pleading, where's all the wine gone? The thing we put our trust in to give us joy is dried up. John 2 reminds us that Jesus is the only source of wine that will not run out. Every other source of wine we try to tap into for joy will run out. And I wish I could give you a five-step guide to living a life of abundant joy, but in reality, I only know the first two steps, and I've just been repeating those over and over and over. Step one of two, know the true source of abundant, unending joy, which we have established is Jesus. And step two of two, remain close to that source. Much of the Christian life is a mystery, and I can't tell you the inner workings and finer mechanics of why these two steps work, but I can tell you that given enough time and enough repetition, they do in fact work. Jesus is abundantly joyful and is the source of unending joy. But joy did not begin at this wedding. Joy has always been one of the definitive hallmarks of God's people. After all, this is not even the first party found in the Bible, nor is it the last. The Bible begins in Genesis with the marriage of Adam and Eve and ends in the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. All throughout the Bible, feasts and parties show up. And while we do not have the time to look at all of them, I want to conclude by looking at a passage in Isaiah with a litany of connections to John 2. Isaiah 25, 6-8 says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Tears wiped away, a feast with the best food, a banquet with the best wine, abundant joy. And all these things happen because death and shame are defeated on the cross. At the wedding, while everyone around him is swallowing the best wine they've ever had, Jesus knows that the path before him leads to Jerusalem and the cross. There he will swallow death and shame forever. So often we talk about the fulfillment of passages like this only in terms of future joy, that one day, eventually, you can have access to abundant joy and live a life not dominated by shame which is certainly true, but it is not what we see here. Jesus offers real joy and real freedom from shame on this side of eternity and the next. We know that one day death and shame will be eternally and fully swallowed up and that we will feast on the finest food and drink with the finest wine for eternity in the presence of our God. But remember, we pray this every week, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. We pray and we strive as much as we can to make that future reality true in our time, in our spheres of influence for as many people as possible. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed good. We thank you for your son and that he shows us the true character of who he is and by extension who you are. The source of unending joy the person who can swallow shame and death. Lord, we praise you for that. Lord, we ask this week that you would go before us and that you would illuminate places in our lives that we may swallow shame and spread your joy. We ask all these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.